music is intense. So epic. I'm ready to go like out onto the battlefield and do this thing. Well, good morning, church. Thanks for uh, bringing the church into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, Really excited to have all of you in this space this morning. As James mentioned very briefly, um, today is uh, the three-year birthday for Crosspoint Peachtree City, which is uh, quite amazing. Uh, You may not be aware of this, but in the world of church planting and church planting circles, when you begin to talk to church planting organizations, church planting networks, those who externally help to fund church plants to get them off the ground, there's typically a three-year trajectory that's set up from day one. Um, obviously, Jesus builds his church. The Bible tells us that. Jesus is the one who uh, shuts down a church when they abandon the gospel. And so ultimately, Jesus is authoring the story of Cross Point Peachtree City, just like every other church on the planet that comes under the banner of his person and work. But there is something that we can look at in terms of measurables and see that typically a church that makes it to its third birthday has longevity. There are a lot of churches that don't get off the ground when they're planted that don't make it to their third birthday. And so we're really excited. This is a big deal. This morning is a big deal. And so we do wanna celebrate. We hope that your kids have green icing smeared all over their faces before they leave this place this morning. We know that you as adults are gonna go for the white ones because you play it safe and that's okay. We got green for the kids, white for you. Um, but we're excited this morning. We, we are celebrating. We're looking forward to what God's gonna do. Even as we move forward in year four, um, we expect him to do great things. We expect him to be on the move. We're not walking through year four in a spiritually drunken stupor. Uh, like people uh, oftentimes can do in the church um, when they've had a long run at it, but rather we anticipate God to move, to do things. We anticipate him to do things in us and through us, and we're excited to see what he is going to do in 2016 as we move forward. I'm excited also about the series that we're jumping into this morning, not just because the background music is epic, but because the entire series itself is gonna be epic as we dive into the scriptures uh, this morning. Um, as, as we look at the book of Proverbs, one of the first things that we probably need to take note of is that none of us lives a stationary life. We're, we're all on the move. Even if it feels like you're stuck right now in this season of your life, you're still on a path and it's still going somewhere. The question is not, Um, am I on the move? The question is, the path that you're on, where is that leading you? Joe Rigney, a professor, uh, uh, assistant professor of theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary says this. He says, we are always sowing the seeds of our future selves. We are embarked, heading in a particular direction, and sooner or later, we are bound to end up there. Reaping always follows sowing like night follows day. Or another way that we could say it in the words of the famous band Semisonic in their song Closing Time, they say, time for you to go out to the places that you will be from, that, that we're all becoming who we're going to be, if that makes sense. What you do now is shaping your destiny. You can't help that. It, it just is. Um, you're becoming who you will be this very day with the decisions that you make. And, and here's the beautiful thing. God knows that and he cares which is why he gave us the wisdom literature that we find in the scriptures. Now, all of the Bible is the wisdom of God for us, right? So when we talk about wisdom literature, what do we mean? Well, we're ultimately talking about the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Proverbs, and some of the Psalms. And so we're diving into a genre known as wisdom literature as we unpack some of the book of Proverbs over the course of the next couple months. 
The book of Proverbs is an anthology. It's a collection of writings from different authors. Solomon um, contributed the most. He's the most famous, which is why you typically hear people say that Solomon is the author of the book of Proverbs. Um, As I was studying uh, several commentaries this week, the the following question came to my mind. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, uh, but consider this. If Solomon was so wise, wise enough to author much of this particular book of the Bible that we associate with wisdom, why is it that he died such a fool? You ever thought about that? Because if you go back to 1 Kings 11, we're told that he married hundreds of women who worshiped foreign gods, namely 700 wives and 300 concubines that Solomon had. And he began to worship their gods and built altars in worship of their gods. We're told that he's the reason that the kingdom of Israel is divided, was divided into the north and the south, into Israel and Judah, as you continue to read the story of God's people throughout the Old Testament. If Solomon was so wise, why did he die such a fool? And I think the answer to that question is really simple, because he didn't take heed to his own words. If you read the book of Proverbs, you see Solomon say in Proverbs 19, 27, cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. That just because you're on the path of wisdom today doesn't mean that you're gonna be on the path of wisdom tomorrow. Solomon is a sobering example that that we've all gotta persevere in the faith. We've got to keep declaring the promises, the presence, the provision of God, who he is for us in Christ constantly. We've got to, as I've used this language now for quite a while, we've gotta continue to preach the gospel to ourselves because we're going to be prone to veer into the house of folly and we'll unpack some of that poetic imagery in just a moment. Solomon is no more the hero of the book of Proverbs than Jonah was the hero of his story. Every book of the Bible is meant to point to the same hero, namely Jesus, wisdom personified perfectly. Ray Ortland Jr. in his commentary on the book of Proverbs says this. I think this is very helpful. He says, the book of Proverbs is a gospel book because it is part of the Bible. That means the book of Proverbs is good news for bad people. It is about grace for sinners. It is about hope for failures. It is about wisdom for idiots. I love that. He goes on to say, this book is Jesus himself coming to us as our counselor, as our sage, as our life coach. The Lord Jesus Christ is a competent thinker for all times and all cultures. He is a genius and he freely offers us, even us, his unique wisdom. Do you see him that way, he asks. You can have him that way, the universe's greatest expert on you. Have you ever thought about that? That Jesus created you He plays a part in the creation process. He redeemed you through his life, death, and resurrection, but he's also the greatest expert on you individually. He knows how you're wired. He created you to be the way you are. He knows how life works best for you individually as a human being. And so we get to come to the book of Proverbs and see Jesus bring his wisdom to us specifically, individually. And so the question becomes, are you in need of good news this morning? Are you in need of grace? Are you in need of hope? Are you in need of wisdom? I know I am. If the answer to that question is yes, then you're in the right place as we dive into this series this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Proverbs 9. We heard Lydia read the passage in its entirety this morning. Part of that has to do with the fact that this is a poem, and I think it's helpful for us to get the fullness of the imagery all together before we begin to unpack it. 
As you flip there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip open to this morning's passage. If you don't own a Bible, it's the church's birthday, but that's our birthday gift to you. So take it. Um, We want anyone who wants to explore the truth claims of Christianity on their own time to have a Bible to do that. So please take that for free as our gift to you. Let me just pray for us, and we'll jump into this series and, and get to work. God, if left to our own devices, we will train wreck our lives. Apart from the work of the Spirit, we will choose the house of folly every time. Our hearts are deceitful. Our hearts confuse us. We oftentimes see the lure without the hook behind it that folly dangles in front of our faces. God, would you help us? Would you come in power, Holy Spirit, do what only you can do? Would you bring wisdom into our lives? Would you help us to see that wisdom is perfectly personified in the person and work of Jesus over the course of the next couple months? God, we need you. God, would you do this work so that you might receive the glory and our joy would be increased? We lift these things up to you, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, amen. So the sermon uh, sermon this morning, I should say, is entitled, At Whose Table Will You Dine? As we uh, heard Lydia read Uh, Proverbs chapter 9, we see two uh, women, one personifying wisdom, one personifying folly, inviting us into their home to sit at their table. Chapters 1 through 9, just to give you a a very brief overview of the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9 are the introduction. Um, They're a collection of poems uh, designed to compel us to choose wisdom over folly. That's the very purpose of the book itself. If you go backwards to Proverbs chapter one, the first four verses of this book of the Bible say this, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and here's why this book exists, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. That's the vision that God has in giving us this particular book of the Bible for your life so that you might increase in wisdom, in understanding, in instruction. So the book of Proverbs is ultimately about that. It's about obtaining wisdom. Um, Again, the first nine chapters are made up of poetic attempts to, to convert you and to draw you in, to compel you, to persuade you to choose wisdom over folly. It's not until chapter 10 that you really get to the Proverbs themselves. Um, chapter 9, what that means is that chapter 9 is, is the final poem in, in the introductory section of this book of the Bible. It's the last appeal to say, choose wisdom over folly. And so as you look at chapter 9, you're meant to see two contrasting bookends. This chapter of the Bible is broken up really well. Um, So you get the first six verses um, give us a a description of Lady Wisdom. The last six verses give us a description of Lady Folly. We're meant to start with those two bookends and then work our way to the middle of the chapter where we get the key to wisdom. We get to unlock how to obtain wisdom. And so the the author of this particular chapter uh, is fantastic from a literary standpoint. Um, as we begin to look at those two contrasting bookends, we're meant to see a couple things right off the bat. If, if you look at, and, and we'll break this down in just a minute, uh, those two bookends at the beginning and the end of the chapter, you see descriptions of both Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. You see them both call out to the simple. 
You see them both extend an invitation to come and dine, and you see where that invitation leads in both cases. We're, we're not mentioned to, uh, meant to focus so much on the similarities as we are the differences. The similarities exist so that the differences basically jump off the page for us. So let's take a look at some of the differences between Lady Wisdom and, and Lady Folly. Uh, verses one through six, we get this picture of Lady Wisdom. Verse one, the description, wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars that we immediately get this picture of strength. She's built her house and not just any house. It's a large house. It's a stately house. This house is seven pillars strong. The number seven in the scripture symbolizes perfection, completion, that this house is perfect in, any, in every way. It's the perfect house for a throwdown. This is the party that you wanna get invited to, so to speak. We're also meant to see order coming forth from chaos, that a house doesn't start off a house, right? It starts off as lumber, sheetrock, and concrete, and so forth and so on. We're meant to see that Lady Wisdom exercises creative power in, in bringing this house into existence. That's what wisdom does. It, it brings forth beauty from chaos, order from disarray. That's what God does, right? In creation, God takes disarray. He takes the formless void and shapes it into something beautiful. And he does the same thing in redemption. He takes our chaotic, sinful, broken, messy stories and he shapes them into something beautiful. Verse two, wisdom has slaughtered her beast. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table that she's not lazy, she's diligent, she's hardworking, she's interested in providing nothing but the best for her guests. She serves filet. If you're a, meat, if you're a red meat eater, you wanna hang out with wisdom. She serves filet. She serves the choicest of wines, not the stuff you buy in a box at Kroger. I'm in the Bible Belt, that didn't get a laugh. <laughs> she pulls out all the stops. This is the party, again, that you want to get invited to. Verse 3, she has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. That she's established a solid ground game for inviting people to dine at her table. And, and as you'll see as we move forward, she's no respecter of persons. Verse 4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. That this is an invitation to any and all who will acknowledge that they're lacking. Simple here means open to instruction. Lacking sense here means destitute of mind. That, that this is no party for the sophisticated. This is no party for the proud. This is no party for the unteachable. This is no party for know-it-alls. This party is for those who don't have it all together. This party is for the humble. This, is, this party is for those who are open to correction. To those people, wisdom says, you can have a seat at my table and I promise you, you will never go hungry. You will feast and feast and feast until the day you die or until the day Jesus returns. Verse six gives us a picture of where Lady Wisdom's invitation actually leads us. She says, leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. See, now, now we see that the book of Proverbs is not just a matter of luxury. It's not just a matter of living uh, a life that involves better decision-making very pragmatically, but rather it's a matter of life and death. She says, leave your simple ways and live, that the stakes are high. If you accept Lady Wisdom's invitation, you live. If you reject her invitation, you die. Wisdom is calling out to all who will listen. And, and what she's saying is, I've got something so much better to offer you than that seductive harlot across the street. 
The question for us is, do we believe that? And really, will we believe that? Because the reality, again, is that we're faced with these two houses constantly. It's not like you enter the house of wisdom never to leave. We're all like pinballs, just bouncing back and forth with moment-by-moment decisions as to whose house we're going to enter in and whose table we're going to dine at. We have to ask that question, do we believe that what Lady Wisdom offers is better than what Lady Folly offers? And so it's helpful for us to get a picture of who Lady Folly is. If you go down to verse 13, you, you get this description. The woman Folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. That unlike Lady Wisdom, who exhibits beauty and order, Lady Folly is loud. She's unruly. She's unrestrained. You ever met someone like this? It's, it's really amazing to see that wisdom and folly just seep out of us externally. We can't help it. And, and the scary thing is that most of us don't see it in our own lives. Others look in and they peer in and they see wisdom or folly when they look at our lives. Unlike Lady Wisdom, who's noble, who's above reproach, Lady Folly is a seductive harlot. Her motto is, if you got it, flaunt it. She has no discretion, no value system. Verse 14, she sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling out to those who pass by who are going straight on their way. Unlike Lady Wisdom, she's done nothing to prepare for those who will sit at her table, and really there's nothing to prepare in the first place, right? No choicest of meats, no finest of wines. The best she has to offer is bread, water, and certain death. Sounds like prison language, right? You want a diet of bread and water? Go hang out with Lady Folly. She does the only thing she can do because she has nothing to offer. She dangles a seductive lure in front of us and tries to hide the hook. Question for us is how often do we allow the seduction of the lure to drag us into the house of folly? Go into the word picture of an iceberg. Much of what you don't see that's dangerous is below the water. Verse 16 her invitation is, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Her invitation in verse 16 is verbatim the invitation of Lady Wisdom in verse 4. But then in verse 17, we see a drastic contrast. Wisdom offers filet and wine. Folly offers bread and water. She says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. She speaks in half-truths. Sin is sweet and pleasant for a season, Right? I mean, let's be honest. If we're honest, we all have some form of a sweet tooth for sin. It just looks different. It manifests itself differently in each of our lives. But the truth is, sin may be sweet for a season. In the end, it's revolting. It's repulsive. It's ugly. It leads to death. The terrifying thing is that just like Satan, Lady Folly um, does a good job of sweeping the connection between sin and death under the rug so that we don't see it. She's inviting her victims to sit at her table, to raise a glass, and to toast their own death. And they don't even know she's doing it. Verse 18, but he, he who turns into Lady Folly's house does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't it true that those who are on a path of destruction rarely know it? I mean, don't we all have people in our lives that we, we look at and want to just grab them by, by the shoulders and shake them and say, you're in the house of folly and you're hanging out among the dead. There are nothing but corpses here. There's nothing but destruction coming your way. 
And that's easy to do. The scarier thing to do is to assess our own lives, to stop for a minute and to ask the question, am I on a path to destruction and can't even see it in my own life? If they knew it was at stake, those who chose Lady Folly would leave her house and enter the other, obviously. It really comes down to having eyes to see that oftentimes the land of the living looks like the land of the dead to us and the land of the dead looks like the land of the living sometimes. I wanna show a, a couple clips from a, a movie that I'm certain is not being shown in any other church in the tri-state area this morning. Uh, it's from a Tim Burton movie entitled The Corpse Bride. Um, it's one of several uh, pairings of Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. It's a stop, animation, uh, stop motion animation movie. And I, I'm, not, I'm not gonna set up the plot for this because that's not what I want you to see, but rather what I want you to get a visual of is the way that Tim Burton depicts the land of the living and contrasts it with the land of the dead. So let me show this first clip, which would uh, lay out his depiction of the land of the living and just take notice of some of the things that you see. It's a terrible day. No, don't be that way. It's a terrible day for a wedding. It's a sad, sad state of affairs we're in. That has led to this ominous wedding. How could our family have come to this to, to marry, marry off our, our daughter, daughter to, to the nouveau riche. They're so common. So coarse. Oh, it couldn't be worse. It couldn't be worse. I'm afraid I disagree. There could be land-rich, bankrupt aristocracy without a penny to their name, just like you and me. And that's, that's why everything, every last little thing, every single tiny microscopic little thing. According to plan, a family led from the depths of deepest poverty to the noble realm of our ancestry. And, and who would have guessed in a million years that our daughter with the face of an altar in disgrace would provide our tickets to our rightful place? All right, so. There you have the land of the living, right? You have this, this picture painted in grayscale, stuffy human beings with, with their hair, uh, perfect in, in the most absurd ways, tight collars, very haughty. They roll their R's, right? Who does that? And then you get this depiction from Burton as he tries to paint a picture of the land of the dead. Notice the contrast. Love has came up with a plan to elope. Die, die, we hope, 
See the contrast? The land of the, the living is in grayscale. The land of the dead is in technicolor. The land of the living, we play pipe organs. The land of the dead, we trade that for a piano as we raise our pint glasses and sing our bar tunes with, with jovialness in our spirits. That, that's the picture that Burton paints. And, and uh, you know, we might look at that and go, that, that's absurd. And yet, that's how our hearts tend to, to, to operate, do they not? I mean, there are a lot of people who are not Christians because they think that to be a part of Christianity is to be a part of the first clip, that Christianity is just grayscale, that it's stuffy, it's boring, it's, it's lacking of jovialness, that, that their current life is much better, that it's, it's the picture painted in the second clip. And, and we find ourselves battling that even as Christians. We, we see sin as, as something sweet to, to the taste we see um, the, the way of God as boring and stuffy sometimes. We get ourselves reversed. And, and for those who, who might even be thinking right now, I can't believe he showed a clip of skeletons in a church service. You need to understand that verses 13 through 18 are far more disturbing than clip number two. That we're talking about the land of death that, that we're being invited into by Lady Folly. And we're not talking about animated characters. We're talking about real life and death issues that are on the line here. And so the reality is that verses 7 through 12 are, are deeply necessary. If we just had the two contrasting bookends, we'd be left hopeless. When we look at verses 7 through 12, we, we get an idea of what it looks like to have eyes to see. We, we get the key to directing our steps as we stand on the path, looking at these two houses and all that they encompass as the two invitations are extended our way. Look at verse 7. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Now, I don't know about you, but my inclination when I look at verses like these, it, without even realizing I've done it, is to categorize myself as the one trying to impart wisdom. Oh, if those scoffers would just listen, I could save them from destruction. And that's definitely an application of, of these verses, no doubt. But in the broader context of Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly trying to draw us in, it's probably more helpful to ask ourselves, am I the scoffer? That's a critical question this morning. Ask yourself that. Am I the scoffer? A scoffer is someone who refuses to be corrected. A scoffer is someone easily offended. A scoffer is someone who looks down his or her nose at others. A scoffer is someone unteachable, lacking humility, someone who bristles at the idea of submitting to any sort of authority. The truth is there's no place setting at wisdom's table for the unteachable, for the proud, for the self-righteous. Truth be told, they, they really don't have a desire to be there in the first place. Right? You, you begin to try to impart wisdom uh, on the unteachable, on the proud, on the self-righteous, and according to these verses, you'll pay for it. Scoffers hate when wisdom is brought into the midst of their folly because it reveals their weaknesses. It reveals their imperfections. It reveals their sin. You could say it this way. A scoffer loves a good Bible study but hates a good community group. 
Give me good content. Just don't ask me to talk about sin and unbelief in my life and how the person and work of Jesus matters for me in that. Bristling at the wise, throwing jabs at the wise. That, that really is easier than repenting sometimes, isn't it? If we're honest, it is for me. So the question becomes, are you the scoffer in these verses? Unteachable, proud, easily offended, impossible to correct. In contrast, if you look at the second half of verse eight, says, reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. That the wise understand that we're a work of progress until Jesus returns or the day we die. The wise know that there's always more learning to be done. There's always more growth and wisdom to obtain. There's always something to be preached to ourselves in the midst of sin and unbelief that is true. According to these verses, there's no such thing as having arrived. A wise man can still be wiser. A wise man, you see that, can still be wiser. A righteous man can increase in learning. That the wise crave the correction, the instruction, the teaching necessary to grow, even, even when it hurts. They deeply desire to see Jesus continue to plant more and more flags of dominion in the kingdom of their life. If you skip down to verses 11 and 12, because again, these are bookends here in in these middle six verses as well. Um, We're moving our way toward verse 10. That's the the critical verse in all of this. Verse 11 and 12, if you skip down, says this, for by me, by wisdom, your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone bear it. These words are, are brilliant. And what they mean is this. On the one hand, apart from community, you will struggle to obtain wisdom. They're called blind spots for a reason. Um, this would be my, my hopeless um, ploy to, to try to get you to join community groups, to be a part of a community group. We all need people around us who will rally with us to point us to Jesus. We cannot do that in isolation. All I'm doing on Sunday mornings is shooting buckshot, hoping it hits somebody. When you get into a smaller community where you can dialogue about sin and unbelief in your life and where Lady Folly is seeking to seduce you, all of a sudden someone can pull back a gospel arrow and just shoot it at your heart. There's something critical about processing in smaller communities. And so um, for the last couple of weeks, we've had community group signups. There's a red card under the chair in front of you. If you are not a part of a community group, fill that out even now as, as we're working through the rest of this passage. Leave it on your chair as you leave this morning and someone will get in touch with you to try to connect you to a group so that we can process what wisdom and folly look like in our lives and, and how Jesus informs all of that by way of the gospel as we come under that banner of his person and work. On the one hand, apart from community, wisdom is impossible, I would say, to obtain. On the other hand, according to verse 12, it is personal. There's a deeply personal element to the Christian life. That hanging out around the church doesn't make you a Christian any more than hanging out around Peachtree City makes you a golf cart. It just doesn't work that way. You personally need the wisdom of Jesus Christ in your life, and so do I. So how do we get it? We've, we've been alluding to it all along the way thus far, but look at verse 10, because I think we get a, a little bit more of a glimpse of, of what the beginning of wisdom really is. Verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The, the phrase fear of the Lord gets very confused, right? A lot of people think that the fear of the Lord means that God is some angry curmudgeon in the sky waiting to zap you with lightning bolts every time you screw up. 
That's not the God of the Bible. When we throw out that phrase, fear of the Lord, what we mean is a reverence, love, and humility that leads to obedience based on how we're seeing God. I've used this example again, but there's not a better one, and so I'm gonna come back to it once again. If you read C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you see Peter and Susan, Edmund and Lucy in the land of Narnia, and they've yet to meet Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, but they've met Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and, and they're hanging out at Mr. and Mrs. Beaver's house, and they're eating a really good meal. Every time I read that particular scene, it makes me hungry. They've just finished up eating, and, and they're talking about Aslan, and uh, one of the kids uh, asks about Aslan, who he is, a descriptor. Uh, is he a man? And and we pick up the story there. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And, and that's where most people cut off the quote, and I think it robs everyone. Because if you continue down to the very next line, you get these words from Peter. He says, I'm longing to see him. I've got to see him. I've got to get up and close with him. I've got to have an intimate experience with him. I've got to wrap my arms around his big furry mane and have a moment with him. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. You see the both and there? That there's a, a deep love for and yet also a deep reverence and humility in the presence of. Reverence, love, and humility before your maker and redeemer, that's the key to obtaining wisdom. That's the beginning of wisdom. Bruce Waltke says it this way in his commentary. I love this quote. He says, what the alphabet is to reading, what notes are to reading music, what numerals are to mathematics, the fear of the Lord is to attaining the revealed knowledge in this book. That without the 26 letters of the alphabet, there is no Shakespeare. Without the 26 letters of the alphabet, there is no Great Gatsby. Without the 26 letters of the alphabet, there is no Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And in the same way, without reverence, love, and humility before your God, there is no wisdom. That the truth is, God has a vision for your story to be one of the greats. He really, really does. One filled with life, honor, humility, blessing, all the words on that signpost. But it all begins with the ABCs of Christianity. Reverence, love, and humility before the great lion of Judah, King Jesus. The entire Bible, I said it before, points to Jesus as the hero, and Proverbs is no different. Jesus is the Holy One in verse 10. We know this because if you fast forward to Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demons cry out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. I know who you are. The Holy One of God. 
John 6, 69, Peter says it this way, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God, Jesus, that it's all about Jesus. It's all about knowing Jesus. If you go back to the first six verses of this chapter and look at them through the lens of the gospel, you see this. You see Jesus opening up his stately palatial home to us, a perfect, complete home represented by its seven pillars. You see his table spread with everything necessary to satisfy us and bring us great joy. You see Jesus sending out his messengers to invite all who are lacking to dine at his table, and we are his ambassadors. Whether you're a Christian or not, this is for you. If you're not a Christian, you need to understand that this invitation has come at great cost to Jesus himself. That he knew that our folly, he knew that our sin would lead to our death. So he lived the perfect life that we could never live, a sinless life. He chose wisdom every time. He never chose folly. He died the death that we deserve to die in our place as our substitute. He experienced the land of the dead so that we could experience life. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would, I would cry out with you just like Lady Wisdom. Turn from your simple ways and enter the house of wisdom. Enter the house of Jesus. Turn to him. You can do that right now. And if you are a Christian, as we close this morning, again, let's be real. Life is complicated, man, is it not? It's not like you enter the house of wisdom never to leave. Again, most of us are like pinballs as we work our way through life. I love the way Ray Ortland Jr. says it in his commentary. He says this, we have histories. We are no longer blank slates. We have scribbles and erasures and misspellings and doodlings written messily all over us. In fact, we were born complicated. We were born with a bias toward folly. We were born guilty. Theologians call it original sin, and it is real. Add on to our underlying depravity the layers of scar tissue, so to speak, from the sins we have committed and the wounds we have suffered, including scar tissue from botched surgeries, mostly self-performed because we're scared of being vulnerable with other people. We try to do it in isolation. All of that complication, he says, is the real you and the real me poised here at the crossroads of Proverbs 9. That is the unsimple you and me for whom an obvious choice can be paralyzing at times. But, there's always a but in the gospel, but that is the real you and me God loves and understands and wants to help deeply. That Jesus didn't die for the rehabilitated you who chooses wisdom every time. That's dumb. That just belittles the gospel. That's moralism. Jesus died for the unrehabilitated you, the imperfect you that still chooses to dine with Lady Folly at times as he cries out from the other side of the street, I've got something better for you. Isn't Jesus amazing? As we venture down this path through the book of Proverbs for the next couple months leading up to Easter, my prayer for all of us, and this is for me included, is that that imagery of the two houses would just sit etched in our minds, that even as you come on Sunday mornings, that on the other side of these signposts, you could just visualize the house of folly and the house of wisdom as we dive into some of these topics like money and humility and the tongue and relationships and family and so forth and so on. And not just as we work our way through the series, but really for the rest of our lives, that, that that imagery of the two houses would sit before you and that you would see Jesus calling out to you from the house of wisdom. Moment by moment, we're faced with the question, at whose table will you dine? You never, never graduate beyond that question. 
Neither do I. In a moment, we'll take communion. We do that uh, here as a Christian. This meal is for you. Um, If you want to participate, we take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. And as, as you prepare to come to the communion table this morning, ask yourself the following questions. What seeds of my future self am I sowing right now? If there's always reaping on the other side of sowing, what seeds of my future self am I sowing right now? In what ways am I being seduced by Lady Folly even now? In what ways am I seeing the lure without seeing the hook behind it and being drawn into her seductive home? Ask yourself, am I the scoffer in this passage? Unteachable, proud, easily offended, impossible to correct. Ask yourself, do I crave the correction, the instruction, the teaching necessary to grow? Even when it hurts, do I crave that? And lastly, and maybe most importantly, because this is the beginning of wisdom, ask yourself, can I declare like young Peter in the land of Narnia, I'm longing to see the Lord. I've got to be close to him, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. That's the beginning of wisdom. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.